A reading from Isaiah. Shout out, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that practiced righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me right, right, yeah, excuse me. (laughs) They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near God. Why do we fast, but you do not see? Why humble ourselves, but you do not notice? Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to strike with a wicked fist. Such fasting as you do today will not make your voice heard on high. It is such a fast that I choose, a day to humble oneself. Is it to bow down the head like a bulrush and to lie in sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the throngs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover them and not to hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up quickly. Your vindicator shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry for help and God will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, Then your light shall rise in the darkness and your gloom be like the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in in parched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fail. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. The word of the Lord. A reading from Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Yet among the mature we do speak wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, when God decreed before the ages for our glory, 
None of the rulers of this age understood this. For they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, When no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within? So also no one comprehends what is truly God's except the Spirit of God. Now we receive not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we speak of these things in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual things to those who are spiritual. Those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's Spirit, for they are foolishness to them, and they are unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. These, those who are spiritual discern all things, and they are themselves subject to no one else's scrutiny. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ, the word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Jesus said, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And therefore whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Immediately following the Beatitudes, Jesus informs his disciples and all of us listening that they and we are the salt of the earth. Isn't that interesting to think about? Not that we can be, but that we are. And salt is one of those images that, well, watered down for us because most of us are used to that girl with the umbrella and that white stuff that's sort of powder thin, you know, the Morton's girl. Um, and that salt, of course, is sodium chloride, but it's not the salt of the earth. And so maybe it's helpful to just remember a little bit that at the time of Jesus, salt was so valuable that it formed the root of the word salary. And that salt came either from the ocean, and, and you can see this, 
if, if you visit one of these countries in the Mediterranean where uh, they'll carve salt pans onto the limestone island and the waves will come in at high tide and go out and they'll trap the water and the sun will evaporate and they scrape the salt. I lived in Malta, that's how they still do it. Or they mine it from the ground, the salt of the earth. It's a pretty costly operation to mine salt from the ground. It's much more expensive, of course, and labor-intense than making the Morton's kind. And what you end up with are crystals, not little specks of fine powder. And they're rarely white. Uh, this is an interesting thing. I had a Boy Scout 10 years ago, a Scoutmaster. We were talking about this in church. And he showed up with five salts of the earth. And the orange one from Hawaii, a black one from Cyprus, a green one from France, a pink one from the Himalayas from India, and, um, and a gray one from somewhere else. <laughs> and that's closer, I think, to what Jesus is talking about because the salt of the earth, of course, has trace minerals in it that makes it distinct and colorful. In fact, almost every color is possible. Bright red, subtle purples, according to the trace minerals in the salt. And there's this interesting turn of phrase, if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? And of course, the answer chemically is that salt can't lose its saltiness. It's either sodium chloride or it isn't. Uh, it can't be salt and not be sodium chloride. No, instead Jesus says, if it loses its saltiness, you throw it into the rubbish pile and you trample on it. And there's only one thing happening at the time of Jesus that would make somebody trample such a valuable commodity as salt, and that is that it had somehow become ceremonially unclean. Unkosher hands had touched it. Maybe somebody had touched a dead body and not gone outside a camp for a, week, a day before touching it. Maybe a woman had touched it during that week of the month that she couldn't touch anything. Maybe an oven had been corrupted or one of the miners who touched the salt, it discovered, had not been ritually clean. And so the salt was considered corrupted and was trampled underneath, underfoot, because it was outwardly vested with some sort of dirtiness. Of course, we know chemically it can't be changed. And I wonder when we reflect upon salt, if Jesus actually isn't inviting us to reconsider that we as the salt of the earth are full of trace, trace minerals that amount to different colors, frankly, inwardly and outwardly. And that maybe what Jesus is warning against is that we lose our distinctive flavor precisely when we try to become that Morton's stuff and all be exactly the same. Because in that sameness, tolerance at all for diversity, for difference, and when some grain of salt dares to be, well, itself, that's when we call it unclean and trample on it. I wonder if this isn't an enjoinder by Jesus against 
being uniform. I wonder if he's inviting us instead to have communion in diversity instead of a communion of uniformity. Put that way, then, perhaps part of our job as being salt of the earth is to be true to our colors, but also to make sure others are allowed to be true to their own. Okay, maybe that's weird. Um, Maybe. Then comes this business about light, you know, and I've got to tell you, this one seems pretty clear, right? Let your light shine. But you know, I I read this book this past year. It was the Pulitzer Prize winning book called All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. Has anybody read that? It was all right. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things in it is it's peppered with these radio science lessons that sort of reminded me something I learned in the ninth grade when I took science for the last time about light. (laughs) All the light we see is color. That's how it appears to us, right? But, of course, such a narrow portion of the spectrum, 2%, is visible. So there's this entire range of light that we can't see. Wavelength going to zero and then mathematically going almost up, well, unbounded, right? So really when you think about it, it is the infinity of light that we cannot see. And the light we see is color. And Jesus says to let your light shine so as to light the city of God. And I'm certain what he means is to make our light visible, to light the kingdom of God with beautiful color instead of just a drab glow. I'm certain because he says we are salt today, we are light today, that he means that even those people who we think have no light in them have in God's eyes some light to shine. And perhaps then what Jesus is inviting us to do is to make our own light visible, but to invite us to make their light visible as well and colorful and beautiful. The reason I think this sort of weird business about salt and light, you see, is because he goes on to criticize the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, people who outwardly were very righteous. In fact, they were people who would help you in a pinch. It's just that they seemed very, very, very concerned with following the law to the letter. Jesus says he's concerned about that too, but he also says he's concerned about following the prophets. The prophets are the people who tell you when you can break the letter of the law to fulfill the spirit of it, right? The prophets are the people who tell you when your donkey falls in a well on the Sabbath, you pull it out on that day. You don't wait until the next day when, it's, when you're allowed to. You go ahead and do work so that you can save the life of the animal. 
The prophets are the people who tell you, you don't really worry about whether your hands are going to be sullied helping somebody because that's actually what real cleanliness looks like. The prophets are the people who tell you when your light will actually shine. And we read it in Isaiah this morning, didn't we? It's when you loose the bonds of injustice. Not when you tighten the bounds of ceremonial purity. Oddly enough, there's a group of people who tour college campuses throughout the United States. They wear cranberry jackets and some kind of pin. And they do the first part of the Isaiah thing. They sort of stand in a visible quadrangle. My college had one of those. They didn't visit mine because we were Baptist. Um, so they didn't need to, right? But what they do is they, when people pass by, they yell at them and harass them. Um, usually they call women some kind of derogatory thing and then they call men, I don't know, drunks or something like this um, because they think that they're fulfilling the call of Isaiah to shout the sins of the people like a trumpet. They didn't read the rest of it about what's an acceptable fast. What they've decided is to call people out on their sins, whether they actually did them or not, but just in general they categorize people this way. By the way, they'll come to UT and they'll come to U of H. I don't know when. You probably can find them on the national tour. Uh, But that's what they'll do is they'll call this out. And you know, I'm just a little bit afraid um, that doing that doesn't in fact help make any light visible. In fact, I'm a little bit worried that it takes the light that's within us and makes it more invisible than it was before we started. No, I think Jesus has something different in mind here. He says that unless our righteousness is greater than that of the Pharisees. And righteousness is a biblical code word not for religious piety, but for justice that is restorative to the world. Unless our justice, restorative to the world, exceeds that of ceremonial cleanliness, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, don't be afraid. I'm pretty sure Jesus is not saying you don't get to go to heaven. I think what he means is you're going to miss God present in the world right now unless you join God in making the colors that God has put in each and every one of us visible to the world. You'll miss it. God will take you there later. That's fine. That's the substance of our faith. But why wait? Why wait? And there's this confusing business anyway, right? Where he says, uh, if you do all this stuff, you'll be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right? Greatest. When I was in Sunday school, I learned every time I did a good thing for God, I got a jewel in my heavenly crown. You know, on the day of judgment, you get a crown, and it's got jewels in it. And each jewel is how you gave 10% of your income that year, or um, how you rebuked the ungodly for their, you know, ungodliness, or um, you put that bumper sticker on your car, and that caused somebody to make a salvation decision. Oh, really, that's what we thought, you know. And, and maybe, except, you know, that when we read the good book, when you get the crown, the first thing you do with it is take it off and throw it at the feet of Jesus because in heaven there is no authority. Jesus is the light of the kingdom of God. And the kingdom is not made of a hierarchy. It's made of equals. So to be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the equivalent to being the least in the kingdom of heaven. After all, Jesus says, the greatest among you will be the servant of all. I think this is part of what Jesus is trying to instill in us 
first of all, that God is with us even when we're not sure God is. That God is with us powerfully and in such a way that God can light the world with color and with flavor. That God can use us as the salt of the earth to sustain and create and flavor this world. From that conviction, when we can see it in ourselves, then I think God says, it is in the other. It is in those people you don't think it's in. So help draw it out of them. Help draw it out. Imagine that person you know that is lightless. Imagine there might be some light in there. It's just not visible yet. It's part of the light we cannot see. And then I think there's one other thing that's on my mind this week. And that is about the visible light of the church. Today in Galveston, because of the Super Bowl, which is not in Galveston, as you know, I still think anybody would let these people downtown, um, Whisperer Baptist Church is protesting something. Um, you know, those are the group of people who don't actually go to a church, but they protest things. Like at military funerals, they go and they protest something and the Hells Angels keep them out, right? And it's just sort of interesting that there's redemption for Hells Angels, isn't there? Uh, when you think about it that way, that's part of the light you can see, right? These are the people who just go around and, and, and have just really awful signs. They're shouting the sins like a trumpet. I mean, really, if you don't think the Cranberry Coat people are real, you know these other people are, right? Uh, they're down there doing this and, you know, of course what they want to do is get on TV, Maybe they hope that they'll convict people, I don't know. But you realize if you're watching TV today, that's what the church looks like, that, that. You know as well as I do that the church has plenty of negative press. You know as well as I do that plenty of people can get on just fine without us because they might not know us. And this, I think, becomes the interesting thing about being visible light. Identifying ourselves as people of faith. That may sound silly, because after all, that's personal and private and people may not want to hear it. But maybe if we take the risk to do that, people start to see a competing narrative to the one that's on television and on Facebook and on fill in the blank. I get to do it for free. Well, I, the uniform's not free. I get to wear that collar around, you know, and it's easy to do, but you should know I don't wear it all the time. And it's really fun for me sometimes when I go places where priests aren't supposed to go <laughs> to say, yeah, you know, incidentally, I'm a priest. It's sort of nice, you know. Uh, and again, easy to say, right? Easy to say. Like if I go to a wine bar, just for example, right? Priests aren't supposed to go there. Well, I'm Episcopal, so I'm supposed to be there. Uh, <laughs> sort of helps me out. <laughs> no, but I, uh, but I do think there's this, there's this piece, right, where in the middle of being private and not pushy, might there be room for us to say to our friends and associates, mm, I, and I don't think it even has to be grand. I think it's just the revelation, you know, my faith means a great deal to me. 
and I go to St. Thomas Church. And if you'd ever consider it, I'd love to go with you and sit with you. What's the worst somebody's going to say? You're crazy. Well, if they know us, then they probably already know that's true. (laughs) So really nothing to lose. No, I want to tell you, I think our world is actually thirsty for competing narratives. Thirsty. Because I think what we know increasingly, and this is happening particularly in people my age, we have a profound mistrust about information we're being presented with. And as you know, there is nothing more compelling than a relationship in which you see somebody's colors and they invite you, invite you to bear and hold out and intensify your own. I wonder if that might be what Jesus has in mind for us as salt and light. And of course, because I mentioned it, I better come back to those Westboro people. Because if we take all this seriously, the light is in them. My imagination isn't always strong enough to see it. But the point is that God's is. And that openness to God's imagination about color and light is what all this is about in the first place. And so how is it that we treat people who so apparently are in the dark? We call the light out of them that God promises to be present over and over and over again. And we do it with love.